Tonight on The Wax, we got Big Joe Turner. asked me the other day how you go about identifying music styles because so many styles are similar and all I could really do is shrug. If you listen to our gentleman tonight, Mr. Big Joe Turner, and you listen to the piano and that that rock and roll piano that you just feel and you believe is rock and roll, well, my friend, that's not rock and roll piano. That's just boogie woogie. And if you really look into boogie woogie, it's very similar to rock and roll. And one of the men who I would say bridged the gap between those two things is our gentleman tonight. I'm Pat. I'm in. Thank you for listening to Dude Check Out This Song. I'm actually pretty excited. The uh, Getting ready, listening to his music tonight got me real amped up. Yeah, his music's fucking amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it's some solid work. So like you might have heard, we are covering Big Joe Turner. And Big Joe Turner was born Joseph Vernon Turner on May 18th, 1911 in Kansas City, Missouri. Ooh. Now, his father was killed in a train accident when Turner was four. Wait, so his dad legitimately got ran over by a train? That's not All just I what his mom said? All I saw was train accident. All I saw was train <laughs> accident. Okay, so the, yeah, I guess trains like go off the rails and also crash, but... Or his car stalled. Yeah. Over. Well, I don't know if they had cars back then, but you know. I, I, I don't... I don't. <laughs> See, this is already a great start. When you start a musical anthology of somebody and the first thing you have to say is, well, he's four years old and his dad got ran over by a train. <laughs> All right. We're, uh, we're really set the precedence for the rock and roll lifestyle already. Well, and so being raised by his mother, his mother wanted him to go to church. And so he started singing for his church. Okay. that's, a, that's we've, we've encountered that a whole bunch of times. And usually people who like start with the church have really solid voices because you really do learn a lot of like, I don't know, the, the basics in church really well. Yeah. And he also was singing on street corners for money. Oh, yeah. Busking's another way. And his very first job was leading a blind singer through the streets for 50 cents. So that probably helped too. <laughs> That's <laughs> Okay, this guy has so many awesome tropes in his early life. <laughs> he's, he's a kid who, like busking. He's, he's singing as an altar boy. His dad got ran over by a train, and now he's leading around like a blind musician. Like That's like a, a samurai sensei start. I'm liking what he's doing already. <laughs> Well, if you like that, it's, it only gets better from here. He left school at the age of 14 to start working in the Kansas City nightclubs, mainly as a cook. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? And he honed his skills by singing along with an uncle who was a nightclub pianist. And when he was old enough, or should I say looked old enough, as the 14-year-old already stood at 6 feet 2 inches tall. <laughs> He would supposedly apply his mother's eyebrow pencil to his upper lip to approximate a mustache and get into nightclubs that way. <laughs> well, now we know why he's Big Joe Turner. <laughs> now we know it's why he's It's not because he's Joe wide. Turner. He's tall. Holy shit. 
at a young age too. Now, okay, I don't know if the fake mustache thing would work anymore, but if that really worked in that time, like that's that's amazing. That's why I said supposedly, because if he did that, he would have to be skilled. Yeah, no, I, I'm not. I don't think that would be. A, <laughs> I don't think that would look realistic in any era. Well, and so Kansas City in the 1920s and 30s, it was a town that pretty much ignored the edicts of prohibition. Liquor flowed in clubs that remained open 24 hours a day with gambling and prostitution viewed not as illegal vices, but harmless sidelines. <laughs> what, just by the local government, I take it? They didn't really enforce it? That's what it sounds like, yeah. yeah. Well. They were mainly after the evil liquor. The evil liquor. And so this is where he was cooking, in illegal speakeasy. <laughs> well, that's a hell of a start right there, man. And while he was working, he met a pianist named Pete Johnson, who was leading a band at a club called Black and Tan. And Joe Turner, being about 14, finally was able to convince him to let him sing with no microphone. And his voice echoed throughout the room. Wait, so they, he, he's like, yeah, you can go sing, but you don't get a microphone? Yeah. Well, I, they probably weren't all that available at the time. Oh, okay. That would make sense. Yeah, he didn't have one, so he couldn't play with one. Or Yeah. And it was, you know, the late 20s, early 30s. So Yeah, so the real performers who had one weren't going to let some 14-year-old kid up on the stage with their microphone? Yep. And because of these performances, he was hired as a bartender whose job it was to bring in bootleg whiskey and start singing whenever the patrons weren't spending to revive their interest. <laughs> that's a hell of a ploy. Like, that's an interesting job combination, too. You just sell liquor and went, nope, nobody's buying liquor. Okay, I'm going up on the stage, guys. Everybody get excited. Start clapping. <laughs> <laughs> and because of this, he became known as the singing barman. That's pretty awesome. Also, isn't that negative reinforcement? Doesn't that mean that they want to not buy beer so that you will play music? Because aren't you giving them a free service for them not spending money on your service? Or you get them so jazzed up they want to stay in and keep spending money. I mean, that's that's tr true. I mean, if, if it's all on that, uh, that, that playing skill right there, that's pretty impressive. But that's a terrible scheme, really. And so with him becoming known as a singing barman, he would start working in venues, like singing in venues, like the Kingfish Club and the Sunset, where him and Pete Johnson you know, would just play a bunch of boogie-woogie. Kind of a emerging jazz style. I mean, boogie-woogie is, is kind of what I was referencing in the intro, too, is this, it's this piano style where, if you really think about, like, the old school, like, you know, rock and roll style piano, it's most often just, like, 90% boogie-woogie. Right. And the sunset, it was managed by a guy named Piney Brown, and it featured separate but equal facilities for white patrons. Separate but equal facilities for white patrons. Yeah, somehow Great. I don't think it was so equal. Great. I did that in quotations, folks. Yeah. I also rolled my eyes in quotations. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, fuck. And so Joe would end up writing a song about this place called Piney Brown Blues, you know, and kind of an ode to this club owner. And this brings us to our first do check out this song. Yeah, I was, I, I was, I was so going to yank that out from under you, but I was feeling <laughs> merciful this day. I th figure I'd let you get one of your own dude check out the songs out. Hey, you got to let me have one or two. Come on now. <laughs> and so, obviously, at this time, like I've mentioned before, prohibition was going on, and the Kansas City nightclubs were subject to frequent raids. Oh, 
That would be terrible. You're sitting there, you're like jamming out to some rock and roll, having yourself a drink, and all of a sudden the cops are like, get him! <laughs> yeah. Get over here! <laughs> it's got to be like the hardcore punk clubs from the 80s where like cops would just come in and cut the power and just start beating the shit out of kids. Yeah, no, exactly. We're not sure why we're here, but... And Turner, he would say about his boss, Piney Brown, after these raids, and I quote, the boss man would have his bondsman down at the police station before we got there. We'd walk in, sign our names, and walk right out. (laughs) Then we would cabaret until the morning. (laughs) Well, that's pretty cool. At least the boss had their back on that shit. Yeah, it it sounds like he had a few cops on the take. Yeah, or, you know, and then we kind of get back to maybe the separate but equal thing was more realistic. Like, maybe he, you know, it had to be separate, but maybe he was providing. Uh, I mean, if he's if they're going to jail like that and he's down there to get them out before they even go in the cell, that's, that's... Or, you know, the cops got the best seats, you know, in the white section, which was probably, like, front row. I mean, I'm <laughs> speculating yeah, here. Yeah, no, but... exactly. It could also definitely have gone the other way where the cops are like, watch this, we're going to get some free shit freeze motherfuckers yeah yeah exactly we gotta fuck with them because they haven't been giving a shit lately yeah exactly so we got to show up our power and in 1938 the duo didn't let the 21st amendment you know ending prohibition which ended five years earlier slow them down at all they just went from nightclub to nightclub and were eventually discovered by a music producer named John Hammond, who invited them to appear at his From Spirituals to Swing concert at Carnegie Hall, designed to expose black musicians to white society. <laughs> no, that's cool. I mean, I that Don't, sounds good on the outside, right? I mean, I think it is a good thing. It also goes to show the racism at the day where the intent behind it was to show white people that black people could play music or something. Yeah, no, it, well, it, it, I guess it all comes about how it was portrayed because it could be something like we're walking somebody around a room full of rich white people like a show pony, you know what I mean? This yeah. is this black musician that I found. Look at the music that he makes, you know what I mean? Like using them that way. or if Yeah, kind of showing them as like a freak show or something. Yeah, no, exactly. But if they were genuinely trying to introduce the societies together that could be a positive so i'm i mean i don't i'm not going to speculate on it yeah we can't read too hard into this yeah so just just move forward Uh, unfortunately at this point second episode of the third season i'm so like worn down by the racism about like musicians in this era that it's it's painful to to keep repeating the the same things over and over again it really does suck so i think we're definitely going to be seeing a theme in this season too yeah no exactly it's it's kind of unfortunately a theme in this era and you can't get around it there is no examples where it's not a part of it so like you know i i I can roll my eyes a little harder every time but we just got to kind of chug through these portions and so the show was stolen by big joe and pete johnson You know, they played music that could essentially be what's considered the start of rock music. This helped with a song that they had called Low Down Dog, an up-tempo song that Big Joe just shouted the entire time, and Johnson just mashing the keys, launching a boogie-woogie craze that swept over much of the nation the next few years, with Joe and Johnson basically being the the number one guys in boogie-woogie. And then they, you know, they'd play the uh, most jumpinest joints in New York. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is really where you get that 
I don't know, that that kind of mentality, like the the staying up all night, like playing the rock and roll kind of thing, you know, this is this is where it first begins is with the boogie woogie era. Even though, you know, jazz and every other type of music had been staying up all night with the same things, doing the same things. Suddenly, I don't know, I think rock and roll really took it out of I don't know. Took it out of the negative connotation and made it to where the popular and more regularized people could do it more often. Well, with white artists adopting rock and, you know, making it safe for white people to do, I think that's what really took it over the top. Yeah, but, I mean, we still get into jazz and things like that. And I, I, I honestly believe, like, I, I think that jazz really is close to, the, like, the rock and roll mentality with certain eras. But modern era jazz, I don't think, kind of sticks to that, definitely. Nah, classic jazz definitely had that. Let's play as loud as we can and just have as good of a time as we can. Yeah, exactly. And now I feel like modern jazz is so much about jazz structure that they totally forgot about the jazz portion. They forgot about being jazzy while (laughs) playing jazz. And on that note, here's my next dude. Check out this song. And that, of course, is Low Down Dog. Oh, yes. I promise not to steal any of them straight away. (laughs) and so with them playing carnegie hall you know they ended up getting interest from record labels big joe would end up recording songs like roland pete going away blues cherry red for vocalion record label and piney brown blues which i mentioned earlier for decker records which brings me to my next dude check out this song that's right let's keep it going oh yes and you guys need to check out roland pete and cherry red yeah Roll um Pete, like E-M. Yep. Yeah, it's it's really good. It was one of our prep songs tonight, and I, uh, I quite thoroughly enjoyed it. And in 1941, Big Joe Turner decided he needed out of New York and moved to Los Angeles. And he'd end up performing in Duke Ellington's review, Jump for Joy, in Hollywood. He would also appear as a singing policeman in a comedy sketch called He's on the Beat. And, you know... Kind of ended up making Los Angeles' home. Wait, so what, what kind of comedy sketch? Was it, like, live? Yeah, like like stage acting. Yeah, that's, okay, that's, I was, I just wasn't sure, because I know it's the era where they were, you know, doing radio shows and stuff like that, too, yeah. so. If it was something that survived, I wanted to be able to, like, experience it, but it doesn't sound like it is. No. I looked, I couldn't find anything, but you're better at the Google than me. Maybe you can find something. Yeah, whip out the Google foo. <laughs> And in 1944, he worked in Mead Lux Lewis's Soundies musical movies. He sang on the soundtrack recordings, but was not present for the filming. And his vocals were actually mouthed by the comedian Dudley Dickerson for the camera. (laughs) And in 1945, Big Joe and Pete Johnson would end up starting the Blue Moon Club, a bar in Los Angeles. And so now they're business owners, you know, things are going good. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole new, or the whole thing, like, when you, when you close out of a career with, like, you know, playing music or something like that, one of the best ways to stay in it, especially uh, in this era, is, you know, make a club where other people can play. Your fame alone usually carries you. I know football players do it nowadays all the time. Oh, yeah, all the time. And also in 1945, he would also sign a recording contract with National Records. He'd end up recording a bunch of songs with them. His first hit single was a cover of Saunders King's SK Blues. He also recorded songs like My Gal's a Jockey, which is pretty risque. <laughs> <laughs> and also a song that was 
considered risque around the clock the same year. Another song called Battle of the Blues. It was a duet with someone named Winoni Harris. And, you know, Turner would end up staying with National till about 1947. But none of these recordings were really considered big sellers. Yeah, and I, we listened to My Gals a Jockey before our uh, preparation time this evening, and it was it was really fun because at first, like the first verse, you you almost feel subverted because the first verse sounds like riding is a euphemism for her like being mean to him and like telling him what to do constantly and kind of you know tell because he he mentions being driven away, and then the second verse, oh, there's a U-turn when he starts like talking about her thighs and the euphemisms get well. You'll you have to experience it yourself. So they're quite means. thick, especially for this time. Yeah, and then uh, the the best part is if you really listen, you don't get too swept away by the sexual stuff. There's a third euphemism for riding, which it sounds like dancing or like doing the the rock and roll, like dancing together on the dance floor is kind of also a riding thing because there's you know a lot of mentions of you know being rock and roll and whatnot. So or not being rock and roll, but you know like listening to music and enjoying music. So. Also in 1945, Big Joe would end up playing a concert called the Cavalcades of Jazz held at Wrigley Field. Wait, like, isn't that a baseball field? That would be in Chicago, okay. where the Chicago Cubs play. Okay. I, 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 knew, I know some sports ball things. Yay, sports ball. And he would play in front of a crowd of 15,000. Ooh. And this had all sorts of artists like Count Basie. Talk uh, about him a bunch. He rocks. Yep. The uh, the Honey Drippers, the Peter Sisters, Slim and Bam. I don't know who the fuck they are, but sounds pretty cool. They all sound like they kick a whole yeah. bunch of ass. They sound like cool band names, but I don't have any personal experience with any of those people. And so it just seems like at this time, Joe was just going around playing music. Couldn't find really a whole lot of information other than like in 1948, he played alongside Dizzy Gillespie. Oh, Dizzy Gillespie. Maybe someone we've mentioned once or twice. Yep. At the Cavalcade of Jazz at Wrigley Field again. Nice. And this, it, so this must be a regular thing at Wrigley Field. No, it's not still going on today. It went from 1945 to 1958, and it didn't even end up being played at Wrigley Field the whole time. By the very last one, it was held at a place called the Shrine Auditorium. So, so it, was, it sounds it, like they kind of got downgraded after a while. Yeah, they it pittered out pretty quickly. But good news, this does bring me to my next dude. Check out the song, My Gal's a Jockey, and Around the Clock, the two dirtiest songs that I mentioned. Oh, yes, they are. They are so sweet. Truly romantic ballads. <laughs> 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 That's what you want to call it, okay? <laughs> And so, in and so in 1951, while Joe was performing with the Count Basie Orchestra at the Harlem's Apollo Theater as a replacement for Jimmy Rushing, he was spotted by Ahmet and Nishui Erdogan, who contracted him to their new recording company, Atlantic Records. Oh, even though you butchered his name, that's, uh, that's pretty good. Well... That's some hard. That's a hard name to pronounce. You want me to spell that for you? Oh no, no, I don't even want to. I don't even want you to spell it. If anybody cares that much, I'm sure they can rewind that a couple of times and try and piece your your language together. Let's just <laughs> let's just forget that ever happened. Forget that ever happened. And so for Atlantic, he actually had like a firm sense of direction because he kind of with his music went all over the place. It wasn't just boogie woogie. 
you do like traditional jazz stuff and do you like orchestra stuff and stuff like that. But this is where he really kind of rounded out that whole boogie woogie rock and roll sound where he truly found it. Yeah. Like he would end up recording 18 hits in seven years with Atlantic. And some of those songs include like a blues standard, Chains of Love and Sweet 16. But then, you know, he'd get crazy with his shouts and stuff, you know, with songs like Boogie Woogie Country Girl and Honey Hush, where at the end of the song, he would constantly yell, Hi-Ho Silver. (laughs) 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 And a lot of these recordings would reach the top of the rhythm and blues charts. Some of his songs were so risque, at least at the time, that some of the radio stations refused to play them, but... They would get played all the time on jukeboxes and records. Yeah, like it was the the secret underground. Like, you won't hear this stuff on the radio, man. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like, this is something they can't play. It must be good. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a theme that kind of persists through all media. But it's kind of an interesting place for it to exist, like in music in this era. And so in 1954, he would end up recording his biggest song. And I know you've at least heard a version of this. Shake, rattle, and roll. Shake, rattle, and roll. Sorry, I'm not singing. Uh, (laughs) I just wanted you to continue. (laughs) And we lost two listeners on that one. Yeah, people are already like, whoa, whoa, we don't want, we're not, we're not into this. (laughs) He had his one warning when he sang in the one episode last season. And this song would, you know, actually make him famous and turn him into a popular musician. And this song was also considered somewhat risque where he has a line right at the beginning of the song. Get out of that bed, wash your face and hands. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then other lines like wearing those dresses, the sun comes shining through. I can't believe my eyes. All that mess belongs to you. <laughs> Some of the best euphemisms were back in this day, though, too, when they really had to like. Yeah. sneak it in there yeah no exactly this this 40s 50s era like risque music style we we expo- or experienced this with a couple of the female artists we played uh what was her name you know who i'm talking about yeah ma rainey ma rainey yeah ma rainey was a very similar uh situation where it's kind of like super risque but you can't really be like you can't be mad at it because it's so like hidden in literature where you, everybody gets it, but it's not lewd in any way. So there's really not much you can actually do about it besides like refuse to play it at the radio level. Well, and once again, because the song was such a hit, it was covered by Wyatt artists, Bill Haley and his comments. Now they took out some of the <laughs> risque stuff. Yeah. Some of the risque stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, Bill Haley and his comments are like a good band, though. From, right. From what I've listened and to, that was, theirs, they're they're a pretty decent, like rock and roll band. Like and, they're early rock and roll, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's like legitimately where I first heard this song too was from them. And of course, they had. I been, actually learned it from Snake Rattle and Roll for the NES. <laughs> of course, they would have greater success, and you know, introducing rhythm and blues to a wide audience. Elvis Presley would end up doing a version of Shake, Rattle, and Roll, but it wasn't successful, so we don't have to bitch about Elvis this episode. Oh, good. Whew. I knew you were worried. Yeah, I mean, the, the, this I hurt season. my back. We, we, we beat up Elvis so bad last time, I pulled a muscle. I mean, I'm not, I'm not healed up to do it again. 
<laughs> and so this brings me to my next do check out this song. We've got Sweet 16, Boogie Woogie Country Girl, which I know you love. Oh, yes. Boogie Woogie Country Girl was good. Honey Hush. And, of course, we got to add Shake, Rattle, and Roll in there. Because if you haven't heard Shake, Rattle, and Roll, listen to the fucking song, dude. This is an amazing song. Yeah. And, okay, so, and one thing, Boogie Woogie Country Girl, just for a frame of reference... He is singing that in from his perspective about a white girl. So just kind of while you're while you're listening to that, take your take the racial intonations from the era into it and kind of like pay attention to that, and you'll see why it's even more risque than just the sexual portions of the sh- of the song. Because I don't know, it, that's one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much is because for the era and all that, it's it's kind of a perfect storm of you know I'm gonna do what I want. Yeah, he's pretty good at just. Going, I'm going to sing whatever I feel like. And usually that what he feels like singing about is sex. Yeah. Well, I mean, can't argue with that. There's a reason why most songs are about love. Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays, we make it just in love in quotation marks. And uh, less often does it get as nasty as it did. Honestly, like I'd say in the 40s and 50s, it got the nastiest that music has gotten in our recent era. Even though, given there are some fringe elements of modern music that are, are probably way more nasty in like a, you know, like a straightforward kind of a way yeah i guess a straightforward kind, an artless kind of a way yeah not to throw any shade at anybody but if you're gonna like you know if you're gonna make your songs heavily sexual there's there's a reason why like artists of skill write it in a way to where it's hidden under a layer it's because that's that's artistically bringing a message forward rather than just saying i like boobies boom 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 where'd that sun go yeah right Did you see the sun I don't know, the shade got over us somehow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's where, yeah. We're, we're th- there's a lot of shade coming our way, I know. And so in 1956, Joe would end up performing on the television program Showtime at the Apollo. And in the movie, Shake, Rattle, and Rock. Oh, damn. The people really like to do a play on the words of that song. Yeah. That song's probably been edited with one word here and there <laughs> since the song came out. Yeah, because it, it is really, it's a, I want to, I, I almost said like cookie cutter because that's not really like, the, it became cookie cutter because of how many times it was like repurposed. Right. So <laughs> when Big Joe did it, it was an original piece, but ever since people have chopped it apart and kind of used what they needed out of it. And so after recording all these hits, Joe was kind of considered an elder statesman, you know, He was in his mid-40s by the time Shake, Rattle, and Roll came out. And even though he was held in high regard by other artists, many of whom have been drawn to rock and roll because of what he did, by the late 50s, his popularity would kind of wane as, you know, music kind of became a focus on the youth, you know, and then they would also start taming down the lyrics, you know, so they could get by the censors and get them on the air. Oh, so he kind of carries over into the next generation a little bit, and it doesn't reflect well on his uh, his sales and things like that. Yeah, he wasn't quite sellable, you know, in a mass media sense. Because well, especially yeah, you if you start think... t- talking about late fifties, we have a lot of like different and real rock and roll coming right. out. Yeah, and you got to think like this is around the time of Elvis, where him shaking his hips was considered obscene, and some of the lyrics that we've listened to today 
I mean, you think you'd be able to play on the <laughs> yeah. TV with some of that? We couldn't probably play some of the lyrics that on the, on the fucking podcast we're on. And, you know, I mean, I know they're available on, like, regular, like, settings and stuff. I know, like, adult settings are a thing in real life and blah, blah, blah. But a lot of the things that they make risque references to would still be considered very risque nowadays. And so Big Joe would just, he'd continue singing through the 60s and 70s, kind of turning towards a more traditional jazz style. In 1965, he would tour England. In 1966, he would end up recording an album with Bill Haley's band, who was actually loaned to him by Bill Haley. Like, Bill Haley was actually, like, a legitimate fan of Big Joe. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, and so they would end up doing a bunch of recordings down in Mexico. In 1977, he recorded a cover version of Guitar Slim's song, The Things I Used to Do. Nice, nice. Yeah, and so, I mean, he was still... He's persisting. Yeah. Like, persisting in the 70s, and, like, that's such a... If we talk about, you know, trying to consist and persist as a musician in this era, getting through the 60s and the 70s and still being even slightly relevant into the early 70s is so special for somebody who started in the 50s you know what i mean right. because really if you if you really think about it, it like 49 slash like 52 that area that era that is such like a gate where these people who were really popular before that were really popular and then there's this year where everyone's like nah we like this now right but I think he would always at least have the rooms of the people who were nostalgic about him. So he could at least play to them. I mean, yeah, and that's one of the things. Like, a benefit of any musician who, quote-unquote, goes out of style, the people who are also going out of style will always still remain your fandom. That's just kind of the way it goes. And now, Big Joe... Getting to the later points of his life, he really, really did live up to the name Big Joe. He'd end up reaching 400 pounds, end up suffering from a bunch of health problems. Ian, your voice did that thing where it drops an octave. That's not the good times of this story. It's definitely not the good times of this story. All right. And yeah, he would end up suffering health problems, including diabetes and kidney problems that would require dialysis treatment. Take care of your bodies, ladies and gentlemen. And Turner, who had been robbed of songwriting credits, never being paid royalties after leaving Atlantic, despite them keeping his biggest songs in circulation and repeatedly putting them on compilations for decades, was forced to continue to perform into his 70s, often while using a cane or while seated, just to make ends meet. (laughs) Fuck, dude. That is... We're getting back to the theme of what I think the season's going to be. Yeah, people not being represented financially for their artistic incline or you know inputs to society in any way. That's, Black people, yeah, not spe- being representative. Yeah. Their songs being stolen by white artists, and them not being paid for the God. labors of their work. Yeah, and I like. One of the things is we've been slowly inching forward in time as we cover all these you know obscure artists, or at least the mo- mostly obscure artists that we. Uh, really want to look at and though we're we're itching forward in that era it hasn't it hasn't changed it's just a new weapon in the same fucking bullshit the difference is is they've become extremely marketable now yeah and they use them for that marketability 
Yeah, so instead of you recording for nothing and then re- getting famous after your rights were taken away, now people are maintaining their rights through their career and then just not maintaining them afterwards. Yeah, it's like white artists could retire off of the royalties they made off their songs, but black artists had to continue to play live. Yeah, exactly. So your career was, you were moving through the the revenues you'd make through I would assume touring and whatever initial yeah. releases were, but you weren't retaining long release, uh, like finances and things like that. Well, right. And as you get older, you want to, you know, tour less cause touring's tough. Dude, you, if you wrote the song shake, rattle and roll and you had to fucking still work till you were 70 society failed you. Like I'm not, I don't want to get into too many like social implications here, but straight up, we like this song. This song is a a brick in our foundation, and the man who wrote that had to continue to work into his seventies. Just think about that. Especially while Bill Haley, you know, probably was living comfortably, and you know, wasn't even barely playing at this point. Maybe I, a few times a year. Yeah, I guarantee Bill Haley was fucking living the rock and roll lifestyle, and then still had some. No offense to Bill Haley. I mean, I, I don't know anything in, like personal about the situation, so I'm never going to throw shade at somebody who we don't have evidence of. Except for Elvis, of course. Oh, we, <laughs> we have the evidence on Elvis, so we're going to throw some shade at Elvis just because, you know. We can. Yeah, we, we have earned that right. And so in November 1985, a couple months after I was born, Big Joe Turner would end up dying of heart failure in Inglewood, California, having suffered from the effects of arthritis, a stroke, and diabetes. He was buried at Roosevelt Memorial Park in Gardena, California. Did they list arthritis as one of the reasons he had a stroke? I think it was just one of the things he was... Yeah, and so it was probably just a mixture of the three that ended up causing him to die. Yeah, I'm not. Because I, when I'm you're, not when a medical tech or professional in any way, so yeah. like, but I would just assume maybe like a like pain levels being higher on average raises your stress or something. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm thinking. That is not not to mention. Yeah, not to mention the fact that he had diabetes. So you know, and being older, probably harder for him to check, and the fact they had to keep touring. You know, yeah, the fact that he had to literally keep working and traveling, and he couldn't he couldn't retire off the money he got and actually have professional care for him. You know, yeah, it's I don't know, it's it's such a repeated story over and over again. It's actually really sad, and you know, in some angles, you can't just blame the people who exploited them because uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not. I'm not making any uh, excuses for anyone, but in reality, it's not just their fault. Most of these people had a high income when they were young and just spent through it, too, like through their mid You know what I mean? Like a lot of these musicians didn't think about their future at all. No. So, so that's that's a lot of musicians I, do live in the moment. That's yeah. for sure. So I will throw that out there. where like, you know, everybody is responsible for their own existence. So any, if anybody's listened to this podcast in this very moment in the next year or two years or whatever you guys rocket fame or and fortune save, save some money save some money you're not going to be famous forever but nobody's famous forever nobody like okay some people are famous forever but, but that's elvis presley yeah buddy holly yeah if you if you honestly land on that list congratulations but you'll still be served by saving a little money in the early portions of your career just to make sure that you and your family are secure because god knows that shit can disappear early so just just be responsible joe would end up getting posthumously inducted in the rock and roll hall of fame though in 1987 
Well, I mean, at least he made it. It sucks that it has to be posthumous by only two years. That's almost like, oh, you're dead, now we remember you, but... It seems to work that way a lot of the times, though, too. Yeah. Especially in this era where it was kind of still new. Well, I think as terrible as it is, when you die, you're... It's almost time for people who want to be critical of other people's, like, careers. That's the point when people review you because it's over. There is a finite end. It's like waiting to the end of a book series to read a book series. That's the way critics are about musicians. Well, it's all. it also kind of plays along the thing where whenever, uh, whenever a musician dies, their album sales spike right after they die. And that right there is why we romanticize that, like, early death rock and roll 26 27 year old like oh no he was so tortured he was taken from us too early the art was blah, 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 because that is it's like a yeah, you, you don't have time for your songs to kind of fade away into obscurity yeah exactly so it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because then and then people begin to emulate it which is honestly something we really got into several decades later and we you know i I, we're not going to get into this too much obviously it's something we may cover in the far 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 ultra future but like it almost becomes cool to die and that's weird like that's just something that i don't know as a like to die for cred and all that shit like that's just not well there's kind of a a thing especially with younger people me and pat are in our mid-30s so we're not you know young by any any means at this point where there's kind of a live fast, die young ethos, especially when rock and roll came out, you know, and we're not, we're not judging because Ian and I lived fast and just didn't happen to die. Yeah, so, we got lucky. So like, you know, I can honestly say that I lived through that portion. I had, I had all of that. I've done all the weird shit. You know what I mean? Like I, we were musicians through our twenties and we are, you know, we're still musicians today, but we, uh, we fell into the epoch of thinking that we were uh, going to be professional musicians through our 20s. Oh, yeah. And we really did grind hard on trying to be professional musicians. And, you know, the fact that you won't be able to find very much on either of us proves the fact that, you know, it's not for everyone. It's not reality. You know what I mean? Like pe- Reality checked us hard. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's... and. It, I don't know. It, I'm not trying to be bitter about it at all. And then it's just the way reality is. And it's why we ended up having an interest in talking about the history of music because like the the situational kind of domino effect of anybody's existence and kind of you don't get to control what's going to be popular later so you almost have to make something before it's popular that fits into a frame of popularity and get lucky with it especially if you want to be extremely on the forefront of something like boogie woogie piano was into say rock and roll i like where you're going with that but this is starting to sound like last thoughts area. Oh, so we have to announce the the segment before we move on to it then. Uh, so, I mean, that's what we've been doing. Last <laughs> thoughts, everybody, on the end of the train here. Whoop, whoop, whoop. That was, that was my snake Latin rattle and roll noise. Well, I went first last time, so I think it's your turn to start uh, off the last okay, thoughts. Okay, okay, okay. So, last thoughts on Big Joe Turner. Okay, so I honestly can apply a lot of the last thoughts for the last three seasons to this guy, so I won't repeat myself. Liar. <laughs> but what I want you guys to think about and what you what I want you to focus on before we even get started here is just think of all of the 
the thematic implications that this man's career was already subjected to without his input. So remember all the racial intonations, all the facts, you know, if he makes sexy songs, so people don't like him because he mentions a woman's thighs in one of his songs, all of these other references, you go ahead and apply all the negative or modifiers you want. I'm going to focus for a moment on the positives because this man not only wrote some of the most influential music and pioneered some beat structures and song structures with his short songs and his rapid tempos and formed changes that would later what we would be calling rock and roll. You can't necessarily say he invented anything, but this man contributed in such a large way to the structure of rock and roll long before it existed, long before he ever knew it was coming. His innovations provided bricks for the house that we all live in today. And I find it so disfucking respectful of just existence itself. I can't blame it on any one person. I'm sure I could find a hundred assholes in the chain of situations through his life. And I could blame it on, you know, the ecology of the world. And I could blame it on whatever I wanted. The fact is, if we're just being honest about the situation and not trying to critically bring apart an answer and make an argumentative situation and just on be honest with ourselves about a situation... That is bullshit that a man who wrote Shake, Rattle, and Roll had to continue to live his life the way he did all the way until his 70s, forcing him into even further deteriorated health. Mm, You are stealing my last thoughts right now. I so wanted to rant and rave about (laughs) this one. You made me go first, bro. And that's true. Uh, But seriously, like he was forced to grind away in further exasperate an already bad situation and I could be critical of his lifestyle as much as I want but it would never compare to the fact that society in general forced this situation upon us and the fact that people whose art is so coveted and used by generations and generations forward are not taken care of in the moment so many people have to die to become worth well and something I've been thinking about while you were talking about this was think about some of the old artists we have nowadays. Like, I'm going to use the Rolling Stones because that's what came to my mind. They are rich beyond our wildest dreams, right? They can afford to have the care to keep them performing live and keep them alive, you know, just in general. Like, he couldn't afford to have people take care of him so that he could keep going. He had to just work till he died. Yeah. When you have to go up with a, with a cane on stage and, and... Sometimes sitting in a chair, too. Yeah, and, <laughs> and that's understandable. If somebody just wants to play music regardless of their disability, please fucking do it. Like, go up in a wheelchair, go up in a hover or, or like a hover vehicle, go up in, like, suspended by a crane if you have to. But the reality is only if you're doing it by design and you, you so desire it. If society forces you to do this to sell yourself like a fucking, like a, like a puppet show and just to keep yourself alive, that is evil. Straight up. The end. Evil. So you know what? If you really care about the musicians in your life, help support them in any way you can. And only support the musicians who deserve it. Don't just be sold things because somebody else says they're popular. Find out what you like about music. Find out what you really care about and really focus on the things that are important. And, dude, check out 
snake rattle and roll for the NES because goddamn <laughs> that was such a fun game. Okay, yeah, your turn. Oh man, well you stole some of my thunder for that, but I guess with my last thoughts, you know, we definitely I think are going to be reaching this theme all the time of a black musician having his art stolen from him and being sold for more money and essentially getting ripped off and have to just work till he dies. That pisses me off. I mean, that honestly pisses me off. I want to rant and rave about that. I want to keep going on about that. But <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. It, I, it, it doesn't It doesn't stop pissing me off. And no. It has nothing to do with myself, I realize. Like, I honestly am offended for some, like, because I went and saw Bob Dylan like five years ago, and he had to sit in a chair. Right. Like, he's, he sat in a chair the whole time, and it, it was very sad for me because obviously I've seen 100 videos of him playing the 60s, but, like... He didn't have to do that, though, either. He doesn't have to do no. that. That's that, it's his choice, and that's great, and he's financially taken care of, and that is representative. But And that's also probably why he's still alive today is because he can financially afford to be able to properly take care of himself so he can go do that even if he is sitting in a chair. What is he, like... Almost 90 now? Yeah, no, exactly. And so I think that maybe if you really think about it, guys, if society doesn't support these people and let them live longer lives, we lose art. We lose every moment that they die before they're done creating. We lose every single bit of that. Well, and so despite this little digression we went on, I really want to spend my last thoughts on, you know, just thanking Big Joe Turner for coming out with Shake, Rattle, and Roll. Without him, I wouldn't be playing metal, let alone have played rock and roll in the past, played rockabilly, played surf. You know, he laid the foundation for what rock and roll became. And without that foundation, the guitar would not be the instrument it was. Maybe... Everybody would be playing fucking trumpet or saxophone or something. Yeah, the three-piece rock and roll band wouldn't be a thing without that style, that's for sure. Yeah. Though the piano got phased out, it's still... Well, and with that boogie-woogie style, it has that style that you can really do well on a guitar, which really led to them, you know, laying out their chord patterns a lot like that boogie-woogie style. And so, let's end this on a positive. Thank you, Joe Turner. Dude, thanks. Without you, we wouldn't have fucking rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we can't obviously give the credentials of the creation of rock and roll to any one person. No, he's one of the influences. But, we got, but we definitely got to stress that. Yeah, but honestly, we've we've searched this year for, or this season, for the, the real building blocks that set the foundation. We've really thought about rock and roll like a house. And today we've laid the concrete. We're going to put some bricks in. And within the next six episodes, we're going to lay in a floor and then we're going to start talking about rock and roll. But just remember, episode two of season three for us is important because this is the first step. We set a foundation in the last episode, but this this is the first time we step into rock and roll ever. And to step into some more music. Please check us out on social media, our Spotify, our Twitter, our Facebook. Please do like just give us a like wherever you can. We need the help. Yeah. I mean, it, we're we're still grinding away in season three. And obviously, you know, it's we've got a lot of people listening all over the world. And everybody who's listened, we're very thankful to you. So, you know, five stars wherever you listen to us. Check us out on whatever you like. Continue listening. Tell your friends. Give a couple dollars to a local musician. Uh, listen to the songs that you care about. 
And thank you for listening to Do Check Out the Song. And have a fantastic evening.